On this edition of the Strongcast, Armstrong visits the White House to chat with Vice Admiral Jerome Adams, the 20th Surgeon General of the United States. We have the opportunity to talk here on the grounds of the White House to the Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's just say that people are able to get the vaccine. There's this mindset that the MAC vaccine will be administered to those that are in the hospital. How would individuals who not go into hospitals, and many Americans are not, how will they have the same opportunity to have access to the vaccine at home? Well, you bring up an important question that I've highlighted from the beginning of this pandemic, and that is equity. We wanna make sure everyone has the opportunity to live their healthiest life. And in terms of getting a vaccine, we are working with CVS, we are working with Walgreens, we're working with uh, local and state health departments and doctor's offices, so that the same places you go to to get your measles vaccine or your flu vaccine, we wanna make those available for people to get their COVID vaccine. And we're even thinking about uh, and experimenting with ways to uh, take vaccines to the people in vans, in other types of venues. But one of the challenges, as you know, is that some of these vaccines have to be kept incredibly cold. So that may limit our ability to put them truly out in the community the way we'd like. But we wanna make sure everyone has the opportunity to get their vaccine. You know, recently on our platform, we sampled about 4,000 people. And what I'm about to share with you is startling. Of the 4,000 people we sampled, we asked how many of them would actually take the vaccine if they had access to it. Uh, only about 26 of that sample said they would take the vaccine. Is it a lack of trust in government? Is it because of their experiences of the past with vaccines with their children? I saw this article in the Washington Post where they went back to the Tuskegee Airmen and many in certain communities because of the past history of the government don't trust it. That is an even deeper problem because you can produce the vaccine, but how are you gonna get the people to trust the process? Well, a vaccine without a willingness for people to take it doesn't do anyone any good. You're exactly right. And we have to remember the legacy of Tuskegee. We have to remember the legacy of Henrietta Lacks. We have to acknowledge and validate people's legitimate concerns about how they've been mistreated by the medical system and the governmental system in the past. The Office of the Surgeon General, many people don't know this, actually oversaw the Tuskegee experiments many decades ago. So that is a legacy that I am constantly every day living with and trying to uh, repair uh, for communities of color. That's number one. Number two, there's no page or chapter in the pandemic playbook for a presidential election. And on all sides, this process has had politics infused into it. What I want people to know is that even if they don't trust the politics, they should trust the process. And the process is one where we've had uh, representative numbers of African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans enrolled in the trials. And I've worked very hard to make that sure that happens. The process is one that has prioritized safety. And from a scientific point of view, these aren't new vaccine technologies. We've been using these technologies for over a decade. We adapted them for COVID, but these will be safe and effective. And I will get the vaccine when they tell me I can get it. So that is something I want people to understand. And then finally, I think that once you start to see people getting the vaccine, I'm gonna get vaccinated publicly when they tell me I can. You've heard several presidents, prior presidents say they will get vaccinated. Several uh, celebrity figures. We wanna make sure uh, people feel confident because they see other people they know and trust getting the vaccine. You know, um, you know, people 
also raised the issue that it's one thing when you have the trials, but let's just say you have two or 3,000 people in the trials and the results, let's say, are resounding, they're phenomenal. But it's quite different when the trials expands to two, three, 10 million people. There are other discoveries that you may find that did not exist in the trials. So that's a great point you bring up. And what I would say to you is that number one, the average vaccine trial uh, historically only has about 5,000 people. Each of these trials, and there are now more than six trials going on, has 30 to 60,000 people. We will have more information about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines at the point of administering them to people than we've had for any other vaccine in history. And I also, again, want to highlight these technologies have been around for 10 years. The Ebola vaccine that they've been using in Africa for years actually is based on the same technology. So it's not like we're just starting to collect data on these vaccines right now. We've been collecting data on these vaccine technologies for over a decade, and we have now hundreds of thousands of people who have been uh, exposed to these vaccines and are reassuring us of safety and efficacy. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, President Trump was an advocate of hydroxychloroquine and the media and pharmaceutical companies and even some medical mindsets have sort of pinned hydroxychloroquine as if it doesn't work. So we had our investigative team um, look at places like Africa and many undeveloped countries and they've been using hydroxychloroquine with malaria for years. And it's actually worked in these communities. And I know firsthand, I know firsthand personally about 10 people who've gone into the hospital early on during the pandemic. And as a last resort, the physician asked whether or not they wanted to try hydroxychloroquine and they tried it and they survived. Now, some people say the reason why hydroxychloroquine is paying because the pills are $10 a pill and the pharmaceutical, the drug companies cannot make any money on this. And it's more about the business. How do we know and how can people be assured that the best therapeutics, the best drugs, whatever they have access, it actually works for the people. And it's not just about business and making money for big pharma. Well, I want people to understand that the National Institutes of Health, that the Food and Drug Administration, they have uh, the best scientists in the world looking at the evidence, looking at the data. And remember earlier this year, uh, we were uh, really in the dark about this virus in many ways. And so we tried different things and we will continue. There are still ongoing trials looking at if certain populations can benefit from hydroxychloroquine. But what I want people to know is we actually have therapeutics that have been proven to be effective, like remdesivir, we need more people to get it, like monoclonal antibodies and convalescent plasma. Over 10 million people in this country, Armstrong, have recovered from COVID-19, and we need them to consider giving convalescent plasma because that has shown promise in helping people. Uh, we wanna make sure you can get a therapeutic if you get sick. We wanna make sure we prevent you from getting sick by, uh, by promoting mitigation measures, but also by making sure people have confidence in a vaccine. That's how we get out of this virus. There's been a lot of talk about hydroxychloroquine. I'm not one who, uh, who, who uh, pans a particular drug or a doctor's decision, but I tell people, always talk to your physician and make sure your physician is following the science and giving you the best of the tools that are in the tool chest. You know, some people think in this conversation is something that the media is always high, highlighting like Moderna and Pfizer, but the president had many other strategic partners in this process also. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. So uh, throughout the year, we've tried to emphasize public and private and academic and, and other partners out there because the federal government can't solve these problems alone. 
it really uh, is a triumph of the partnerships that we're celebrating today at our vaccine summit. And it's the reason why less than 10 months after sequencing this virus, we now have a number of vaccines that are about to come across the finish line and help us put this pandemic to rest. And so, uh, again, politics aside, we should celebrate everyone who's been a part of Operation Warp Speed and of getting us a vaccine in a lot less time than almost anyone ever expected was possible, but a vaccine that is also safe and over 90% effective. Jerome Adams is the uh, Surgeon General. He's the Chief Medical Doctor for the United States. Let's get into the vaccine. Um, does the vaccine actually, is it an actual cure-all against the virus? Or does it lessen uh, the stress, uh, the kind of um, impact that it could have on someone's um, immune system? Exactly what is it that the vaccine does? And what happens two or three years down the road? Many people are afraid about what could actually, what the real results, the long-term results of using and taking the vaccine. So great questions. Important for people to know the way vaccines work are we're exposing your body to a part of the virus that causes it to produce antibodies. And then when you are subsequently exposed to the virus, those antibodies respond and prevent you from, prevent the virus from replicating, but also prevent the virus from causing you further harm. So the outcomes we looked at were whether or not people had serious um, uh, injury from the virus after they were exposed to the vaccine. Uh, so we wanna limit hospitalizations, we wanna limit deaths. It does not prevent you from getting infected with the virus, but it may prevent you from spreading the virus or dying from the virus. Uh, the important point for people here to understand is we still will need to follow mitigation measures. We still will need to wash our hands. Your mother's been telling you that since you were a little kid, so I don't know why people have a problem with that. We still need to make sure we're watching our distance from one another. We've been saying that for the flu for years. If you're around someone who could be exposed, exposing you to a, to a virus in the wintertime, that you should be cautious and maintain your distance. What's different about coronavirus is that over 50% of the people who spread the virus are doing it without symptoms. They don't know. So if you and I, if one of us were sick right now, had a cold, we'd know it. You would have a fever. You would have a, a watery eyes. You'd feel terrible and you would know it. Um, but right now, one of the two of us could have COVID and the other one wouldn't know it. That's why we emphasize keeping a distance and mask wearing, and that will have to continue into uh, early next year, even as people get vaccinated. But what the vaccine will allow us to do is to open up nursing homes because people are protected. It will allow us to uh, open up businesses. It will allow us to get back to a greater sense of normal. And it's not gonna be a light switch. It's gonna be more like a dimmer switch, but I want people to know that together we can get through this if people hang on just a little bit longer. Some people would say, is that the testing process had been more rigorous from the beginning that less people would have died. Um, talk about the testing process and the kind of progress that we've made. Well, I certainly understand the frustrations people have with testing. Uh, we've now done over 200 million tests in this country, more than anywhere else. We have antigen tests, we have PCR tests, we have antibody tests. What we're working on now is really trying to, to take the test to the people to really push uh, to develop more of the at-home tests so that people can quickly find out whether or not they've, they've got the, the virus. And one of the things that you hear now is that fewer and fewer people are saying they can't get a test. A few months ago, people were saying, I can't get a test. And uh, fewer and fewer people are saying it's taken seven, 10, 14 days to get that test back. So we've come a long way 
Now we want to focus on strategic testing, making sure uh, people can get a test before they travel as the CDC recommends. Making sure that after you're done with traveling, uh, five days after traveling, the CDC recommends you get a test so that you're not asymptomatically spreading the virus. We want to do smart and strategic testing to help us get this virus even more under control along with vaccinations and along with therapeutics. Uh, Surgeon General Adams, track for us from the beginning of this virus. Um, there is always those stories that it started in Wuhan, China, um, in some laboratory. But talk about track the virus, because I think more than anything else in 2020, um, uh, even maybe to a lesser extent than the presidential election, 2020 will be remembered as the year of COVID-19. And it wreaked havoc on Americans, on their lives, on their lifestyle, on our culture, on their movement, on their travel, on their way of life, on their relatives. There will be less people um, coming into the new year that were here the year before. It's just in every aspect, COVID has been the most discussed issue that Americans in the world. Mm -hmm. This is something that has mobilized the world, that has affected the world. Track COVID from us, for us from the beginning as to where we are now. Well, uh, again, Going back to January of last year, and some people uh, predict as far back as 2019, the virus may have been circulating uh, to a small degree. And we, we will likely never know that for certain, but we know that it was uh, circulating at lower levels in January, February, when we first started to find out about this virus. It was very regional in the beginning. And that's important for people to understand about the first and the second waves. The first wave hit Washington and then it hit, uh, hit New York City really hard and a lot of the country was spared. The second wave hit uh, the Southwest really hard and again still a lot of the uh, Midwest and the heartland was spared uh, but people still mitigated and I want to thank them for that but that's why they're frustrated now because now it's the third time they're being asked to do these things and uh, they felt like the first two times it was a boy crying wolf. Well what I want them to understand is this surge is different because everybody is hitting, being hit all at once. So we can't move resources from place A to place B. And you're seeing colleagues become overwhelmed. But what's also different is that we now have a finish line in sight. The hardest, and I was talking with the vice president about this, he tells this story about when he ran a marathon. And he says that the hardest part of the marathon were the last couple of miles. But if you know the finish line is in sight, if it's just around the corner, that gives you the strength you need to keep on keeping on. And I would encourage people to keep on keeping on because this surge is gonna be rough over the next couple of weeks, but the finish line is in sight. And you talked about, uh, again, we're gonna remember this, we will. But here's what I'm hopeful for. I'm hopeful that because of the inequities that this virus has exposed in our country, because of some of the changes in the systems we've made for better data collection, for addressing uh, things like housing and transportation and, uh, and income equity, that, that at the end of this, we can actually say that we've created a better world for people to prevent the next pandemic from uh, occurring or hitting people as hard. So I'm actually optimistic uh, about some of the changes that have taken place this year because of COVID, even as I'm appropriately sorrowful for the uh, hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost. What, what is the best, um, from your experience, how do you optimize the mask wearing? Well. I think what you have to do is, number one, help people understand the uncertainty. And that was a challenge we had because uh, I want people to remember that this SARS-CoV-2 virus is the same family of viruses that causes the common cold. And we believed 
we truly believed and the science suggested that if it behaved like every other coronavirus, that you wouldn't have large numbers of people spreading it without symptoms. That is why we did not recommend mask wearing in the beginning, because we quite frankly didn't think the science supported it. As soon as the science showed that more and more people were spreading it asymptomatically and that we should wear masks, we changed our recommendations. But that caused people to lose faith in, in scientists and in government. And then you also had, again, politics just heaped on top of this. There's no chapter in the pandemic playbook for a presidential election. And so that made it incredibly challenging. Uh, and then you had people talking about mandates. And we have to remember our country was founded largely by people who left their country because they didn't want the government telling them what to do. So mandates are incredibly difficult and they've always been difficult. It took us 50 years to get people to embrace seatbelt wearing. It took us 50 years to get people to uh, go to smoke-free air places. So we shouldn't be shocked that it's taking us a while to get people to rally around the idea of, of being told you have to wear a mask. My approach has always been to help people understand why and how it benefits them. And again, the why is that you could be asymptomatically spreading the virus, and that's why we want people to wear masks. And the how it benefits you is not just that it keeps you from getting sick, but it also helps us keep places open. It helps me get my kids back to school. It helps us reopen restaurants. It helps us get back to normal quicker. And studies have actually shown that places that had higher levels of mask wearing had shorter shutdowns and had uh, smaller surges. And that's what everyone wants. Everyone benefits from that. So whether you live in a place that has a mask mandate or not, do it because it's the right thing to do and it will help you and your family and your community, uh, even if you don't do it because someone told you you have to do it. You know, my, my final point um, is President Trump has never gotten the kind of credit that a president deserves for the role that he has played in this pandemic with COVID-19. And as we think about his legacy in so many other areas, talk about the president's role and the leadership that he's shown throughout this pandemic uh, from the very beginning. Well, you and I know that, uh, that leadership really is, is demonstrated by the people who, who carry the, uh, the water for you. And one of the things that the president and the vice president have always emphasized, again, is the great work of uh, the federal partners out there. And I think that that's who really has most unfairly been beaten down. The CDC, the FDA, uh, the other government entities out there who've been working around the clock to protect the American people and got caught up in the buzzsaw of an election year. And I think that we need to all take a deep breath. We all need to understand that, that no one handled this perfectly. People like to compare us to other countries. What they don't understand is that you really should be comparing the U.S. to the entire European Union when you look at the size and the geography. And when you do that, that actually uh, our death toll is about the same as the entire European Union instead of cherry picking different countries. And understand that, that yes, there are plenty of lessons to be learned, but that everyone was working hard and with the desire to protect both health and the economy because the two are inextricably linked. Uh, I have no doubt that there are more people who have been and will be harmed by the economic consequences of coronavirus than there are numerically who will die from coronavirus. And that's not to diminish anyone who's died. That's to say that this has always been a challenge between balancing one versus the other. 
And uh, I try not to uh, uh, say to people, this person did a horrible job or this person did a great job. I want us all to figure out what worked, what didn't, and how we can move forward. And that's what we're trying to do with the administration and with the task force. And uh, we're really excited today about the vaccine summit because that is a great triumph and it's gonna help us put this virus to bed for good. It's also gonna help us reopen and get back to where we were uh, before the pandemic. And that's with record, uh, record uh, increases in our economy and record job growth and uh, record low unemployment. This is Surgeon General. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Strongcast, and please be sure to subscribe.